1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDSE.
2: Welcome to the New
0: Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. Today's guests are dennis austin Britton and kimberly ann coles who have co-edited a special issue of spencer studies in 2021 on spencer and race dennis is associate professor of english at the university of british columbia his previous book becoming christian race reformation and early modern english romance was published through fordham university press in 2014. Dennis has also served as the board president of the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire. Kim is professor of English at the University of Maryland. She has published Religion, Reform, and Women's Writing in Early Modern England with Cambridge University Press in 2008, and Bad Humor, Race, and Religious Essentialism in Early Modern England with the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2022. We will be discussing the impetus and contributions of this special issue of Spencer Studies today, which features brilliant scholarship by Tess Grogan, Ayana Thompson, Melissa Sanchez, Eric Song, Urbashi Chakravarti, Andrew Hadfield, and Benedict Robinson, among others. I'm excited to welcome Dennis and Kim to the podcast. Thank you, Thank John. Yes, yeah, great to be here. Your introduction to this special issue on Spencer and Race asks how we encounter a writer like Edmund Spencer, what institutional contexts, biases, and social settings frame that encounter, and how those frameworks implicitly endorse certain questions and disallow others. I'd like to start by discussing your own relationships with Spencer. What has your journey in Spencerland been? Did it begin in the classroom, and at what level? Did it begin with the Fairy Queen or the pamphlets or the sonnets, Dennis? Perhaps you can start us off.
1: Yes, you're making me go back into the uh, the recesses of time. Um, yeah, I, I first encountered Spencer um, in a survey class. Um, it was a mandatory survey class that all English majors had to take. It was the pre you know British literature before 1800, and um, in that class, thinking back. Thinking back on it now, we read a lot of Spencer because we read both Book One and Book Three. And um, something that in a survey class, I would never do that in a survey class today, but I'm glad that I did do it because um, I think it does take some time to sort of get into the Fairy Queen, right? It takes a little bit of time to say, "Oh, I think I think I get what's going on." And the, and the more you read it, you know, the more you sort of kind of kind of figure it out. Um, but I do remember. Um, you know, very early on, just becoming fascinated by the character of error. And I remember, you know, my, you know, it was the first English class I had ever taken. And, you know, here I was, it was in the first paper of the term, it was the second paper of the term. And here I am writing on Spencer's error. Um, That was my first encounter. I think in that class, we also read a couple of sonnets from the Amoretti. And uh, that was, that was pretty much, that was my first encounter. My other encounters with Spencer would come, um, in a survey, not in a survey class, in a 16th century literature class where I think we read, um, not, we still didn't read all the fairy queen, but we, I think we read books one, three, no one ever reads book two at the undergraduate level, it seems. Um, and I think we also read book five. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, oh, and we also read the shepherd's calendar. So I got a little bit of Spencer Pastoral there, um, yeah, and I, I didn't encounter the, a view until graduate school. So um, Fairy Queen first thing, a little, a couple of sonnets, eventually the pastoral, and much, much later, um, a view of Ireland.
0: I um, I actually, my supervisor was John Kerry. Um, I, I didn't encounter Spencer until graduate school, but my supervisor was John Kerry. Who hated Spencer with the force of a thousand white hot suns, um, and and he's he was a Miltonist, and he always swore that you couldn't love both Spencer and Milton, and his rationale was that Spencer was just such a Puritan he couldn't stomach him. I mean, he just he was constantly irritated by the the certitude the the. I mean, I I think on some level that the the English colonizer was so prominent in that text that Carrie just loathed him throughout. And what I find fascinating about that is not only do I both love Spencer and Milton, um, but I go through periods of hating Spencer. Um, I mean, as I teach him, um, there are classes where I can, you know, there, there are whole semesters where I love teaching Spencer and semesters where I can't, I, I, I find it a struggle the whole way because I'm, I'm loathing him at every point and it's, you know, and then I have to recover him. Usually I spend the summer reading through the fairy queen again, um, as a means of trying to recover, some affection for him as a writer, even if I, I can't feel that toward him as a human being. Um, and it's it's an interesting process uh, to, to try and teach him when you're struggling with how you feel about him as a writer.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. Both of you didn't encounter a view until much later right uh, which really reframes the fairy queen i think in a lot of ways um or you know all of his literary writings um
1: yeah i um i think i think along with what kim said right you know i think when i first encountered the fairy queen uh, well yes i i you know i understood the protestant catholic stuff right and i think that was one of the primary lens through which of course book one was being taught and you know um, but I think like once you encounter uh, a view, you're like, oh, all of this stuff. <laughs> that okay, yeah, yeah. Re- religious conflict is bad, right? No, we're not saying you know religious conflict okay and it's not serious, right? But you start to see the colonial and the racial implications, and you begin to reread some of those encounters, and you, you know the violence. It was violent before, but then the violence takes on a whole n- another level. Um, so I can completely uh, agree, uh, relate to Kim's experience of like, you know, my love for Spencer was somewhat dampened. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I still appreciate him. And sometimes you still get really caught up in just the storytelling, right? And you're just like, oh, this, this is just a really fun, crazy, wacky story that is endlessly entertaining, even though, you know, you're always remembering that... Uh, I, I know what I know what this signifies or what or what this is pointing towards um, or the types of ideas that this is uh, perpetuating. And it becomes, all right, let me just I, I got to acknowledge it. I have to do something with it. I can't ignore it. Um, but there's always this balancing act.
2: Perhaps we can also uh, contextualize this special edited issue within early modern studies and the study of Spencer. What is the intersection of early modern studies and critical race studies look like right now? What are the major cruxes in pre-modern critical race studies? Um, how have you seen it change uh, in the last 10 years? Uh, Kim, perhaps you can set the scene.
0: Oh, <laughs> okay. So uh, easy question. Yeah. Thanks, John. Um, um I will first start with uh our experience of editing this volume um which was i think eye opening to both of us um because the traffic in critical race studies um in Shakespeare studies, is is just very different. Um, just much the the ground is much more trod upon, and that of course has a lot to do. I, th- I was going to say something to do, but I think a lot to do with um, with the precursors. You know, the the heritage of it. Uh, Kim Hall, uh, Margot Hendricks, Ayana Thompson, Arthur Little. Joyce McDonald, I mean, for the most part, um, the people who've laid the ground in this field are um, Shakespeareans, um, but I don't think, so we thought, uh, and and the volume came out of a colloquium that Ayanna and I taught at the Folger, uh, in 2017, 2018. Um, and we Dennis was an invited guest and Ayanna said, well, why don't you, um, you know, why don't you collect, um, articles from this colloquium from other places for Spencer studies? Because Dennis and I are both sort of known as spent Spencerians. Um, and we thought, yeah, great idea. I mean, you know, moving it into other areas, other disciplines, showing, putting putting the work forward so people can see how to use it um, and how to press it into service in their own um, research. Neither of us was prepared for just how much pushback we got. and not from the editors of Spencer's studies. But I swear am am I telling a, I, am I telling a true story that it was every chapter okay maybe with one or two exceptions that we had to write long discourses on why these needed against the readers and why these chapters needed to be included. And what it really threw into relief was just how barren critical race studies was in Spencer studies. And that's really shocking in the wake of Dennis's excellent book. Um, And it's it's also, I think, um, shocking in the context of there are a lot of BIPOC scholars who work in Spencer studies. But they don't work on race. And no doubt because they were discouraged from doing so. Um, and I, I, so the point of this was to try to um, provide instruments um, for research, to provide methodologies to show the range of critical race studies and the different points of entry into that kind of research, but how it can apply to Spencer. And I think for us also importantly, why it needs to apply to Spencer as such a um, a large, I mean, he looms so large as a colonial figure. It is so much a part of his writing, a part of who he is, a part of how he understands himself and himself in relation to the world and he really is in many ways a chief architect of english colonial not just endeavor english a chief architect of english whiteness english protestant whiteness i'm sure dennis has lots to add
1: yeah uh like him i think we, i was not prepared for uh, the readers' reports that we received, um, and and it's sort of a need to really defend our authors <laughs> um, and to explain. And again, this was not from the editors of the journal, but uh, I think it really showed us um, that for the most part, you know, Spencer studies has completely ignored. So not only you know not only has the study of not only has critical race studies not influenced the study of Spencer, Spencerians seem to have. Um, ignored right the conversations that are happening not just not even not even just in Shakespeare right but in other things outside of Spencer studies so um, you know things as you know to, to you know to now it seem as sort of silly as to say like well you know the... I, there wasn't race in the early modern period. Like, well, how long, like, how long have we been negating that very basic point? Or, you know, why are they talking about race instead of ethnicity? Right. You know, th- these are not new conversations. Um, these are not new questions that have been brought to, brought to the, brought to early modern studies. And yet these were the types of questions that readers were asking of um Uh, of of the essays, right? So in some ways, you know, of course, right, there was some good feedback and, you know, there were, you know, points that, you know, of refining and of refining of arguments and clarification that were needed. Um, But behind a number of the reader reports really did seem a sort of fundamental question of should we be talking talking about race and Spencer? But the assumption being, no, we shouldn't. Um, That's sort of very old um, and by now, you know, Tired and um, really well addressed uh, argument that to study race in the early modern period is 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 to is to bring anachronism into onto our study, right? That's been an argument that has been con- repeatedly uh, <laughs> addressed, um, uh, you know, since the since the beginning, right? For, for thirty for thirty plus years, and yet that question came up again and again, you know, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly.
0: I was going to add yeah i mean the the as as Dennis said, what was really quite striking was the extent to which um pre-modern critical race studies had just been ignored by the field. um but it also i mean i just to add that one of the important things for us in this collection um was to look at the influence of Spencer um, to show the range of the work of pre-modern critical race studies. But as um, Margot Hendricks in a a wonderful and oft uh, cited uh, paper at uh the 2019 race before race conference coloring the past rewriting our future but she talks about not only the, the the number of different uh methodologies that you know that that race is not a single somatic event that you know it's it's neither rhetorical nor pseudo scientific it's about certain fantasies but those are fantasies um that are produced by a socioeconomic process, as she says, which is colonialism. Um, but she says what really distinguishes uh, pre-modern critical race studies is the bi-directional gaze. Um, you know, looking back in order to see forward, in order to see how we got here and not without reform, obviously, not without, um, you know, there is no teleology here. No one imagines that race travels along any kind of single axis. You know, it's not a train ride through history, but it is something that um, appears, goes underground, rises up again when occasion demands, when it becomes a useful tool for colonialism. Um, and, And so what we really wanted to do with this work is to show how Spencer informs a future of literature, of culture, and of history.
2: Yeah, well, I, I believe this issue is going to go far in changing the shape of that conversation and shedding light on on you know the, a diverse range of methodologies. Um, but perhaps we could shift to the introduction, um, which includes a lengthy passage taken from Spencer's A View of the Present State of Ireland. That pamphlet, which is rooted in Spencer's experience as a colonial administrator and a settler colonialist himself, includes the defense of brutally oppressive mes- measures against Irish insurgencies. Strangely enough, Spencer also discusses wet nursing in deeply racializing ways. Kim, what's the connection for Spencer between colonialism race and, and wet nursing?
0: Well, I mean... Um... Jean Fierich devotes an entire chapter to the politics of breasts in Strangers in Blood. Um, I think she tracks a different kind of um, emergence of race than than I might. But I think she rightly identifies the pseudoscientific notions of race that, that underwrite Spencer and and many people of his um, of his time um, and Spencer is ag- again, this is a tool it's an opportunistic fiction race is an opportunistic fiction it's it's a strategy of opportunity and one of the things we talk about in the introduction is the need to detach um Anglo-Irish lords from their property. And the the the, the way that um, race's lineage intersects or or becomes a useful discourse to raid when constructing race for you know for those who serve. Rating a discourse that entitles, that licenses those who rule is, is obviously available and useful. But it, it's premised on the fact that it has underwritten and supported um, hereditary blood for hundreds of years now supported the the system of government in England. This, of course, becomes problematic when you want to take over the land of those who are by heredity of English descent. And so it becomes requisite to detach the Anglo-Irish lords from their land. And the way to break that is to undermine their, the hereditary blood that entitles them to the land. Um, now, that's, that's only one explanation insofar as this notion of heredity um, moves into um, the, the future uh, formulations of race that, that come into being, it's, it's never a single object. Race is always a scavenger, but one of the things it's going to scavenge is science. It's going to raid science. It's going to raid religion. It's going to, you know, it's, it will, it will use discourse in every available opportunity. It will use every available opportunity to press present discourse into service because it's proof, right? And and proof has to be put into those scare quotes, because you know it's it, in writing of fiction. The best way to do it is stitch together what's already there, and and that is how. Um, breasts or breast milk serve Spencer in notions of, as he says, uh, producing an evil race in Ireland. He is suggesting that because the wet nurses are Irish, their blood, um, breast milk is blood in concocted form. Their blood is investing all young Um, ostensibly English noble children with Irish constitution. And he racializes the Gaelic Irish or the Gaelic English lords in this way. But he also marries the Gaelic Irish and the Anglo-English lords by, by this device, this notion.
2: That seems like a natural place to, to transition to discussing Urvashi Chakravarty's essay in this issue. Uh, the title of the essay is Fit for Fair Habitation, Kinship and Race in a View of the Present State of Ireland. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, Chakravarty's argument in that essay about the co-articulation of temporality, affinity and topography in Spencer's race thinking?
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, and really, um, Chakravarti's article really does, I think, pick up and respond to um, the issues Kim was just discussing, particularly around an investment in blood and the tracing of lineages and heredity as being a tie to power and to the land. Um, Because Chakravarti, really drawing from the insights of critical race studies, as well as queer theory... um, Argues that the Irish concept of kin um, was really, a, in some ways, an affront to that investment. Um, so, uh, you know, um, it's, 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 I can very, very briefly describe what it is. But the, the concept. Next, I'll just quote from Spencer. I'll, I'll say, well, we'll just we'll just use Spencer's definition. Um, but Spencer describes this as. Um, every head of every sept and every chief of every kindred or family should be answerable and bound to bring forth everyone of that kindred or sept under him at all times to be justified when he should be required or charged with any treason, felony, or other heinous crime. All right. So I know that's a kind of a mouthful, but... Um, Chakravarti, I think some, some of course, some really great close reading, but also really interrogating the, the expansiveness of these terms um, really points to that the Irish concept of kinkogish was is much more capacious, much more open than uh, the, an English understanding of race um, and family that is defined solely as consanguinity. Um, sort of through time right so if i can sort of if blood being passed on from one generation to the next generation to the next generation and that sort of ability to, s- to trace lines of descent uh, so if that's one way in which sort of um, uh, race operates it's through um, consanguinity and through lines of descent um, the irish had a very different more expansive notion right so that um, you know, at all times. So it's a sort of, you know, sort of, you know, that this sort of linearness is also being undermined. But also, even with that, um, she talks about, and she, she talks about it in this essay, but she's also explored in, in other of her work, um, um, most recently in her brilliant new book. Um, but this idea of family itself in the early modern period um, could, did not just mean, you know, sort of, you know, um, you know, mother, father, child, right. Um, or, or a family that shared blood, but it, it, it incorporated servants and the members of the household more broadly. Right. So that sort of understanding of, of sort of family coming into conflict and detention with, um, a, a model of family that it can be used or was being used to sort of define, um, uh, racial belonging and and racialized identity so she really does sort of you know the one of the ways that the the english then began to undermine the irish and and the anglo-irish as well and their, their 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 claims for um uh, the, you know, identity and uh, their ownership of their land and the, the occupation of the land was by it's, it's themselves suggesting that the Irish have an illegitimate form of kinship. Um, and uh, in Irvish she would very explicitly call it, this is a queer form of kinship, right? Um, it's not based on the white heteronormative um, uh, sort of uh, family structure. Um, yeah, so the, the, so this is one of the reasons why the Irish have to be dealt with, right? They have this competing understanding of family. But this she also, I think, also very brilliantly notices that you know this whole conversation is not divorced from a conversation about color um, and visible color. Um, that this this delegitimizing of Irish kinship and an Irish sense, of this queer sense of of, of of Irish belonging, right, becomes part of the blackening and the darkening discourse of the Irish and the Irish are then seen as unfit to inhabit you know a land that is repeatedly um, described as fair right so even in the land itself and the people um, you know stand in this incompatible relationship darkened blackened people fair white landscape Um, therefore we English have to come in and do something about it
2: yeah, excellent. That, that's a yeah. I, I think that's an excellent um, summary of a, a very nuanced and uh, a brilliant piece. And another one, uh, another essay in the collection that I really admired was Ross Lerner's piece, which examines the intricate relationship between allegorization and racialization in Spencer's depiction of Muslim and Irish characters in *The Fairy Queen*. Can you walk us through Lerner's argument in that article? Kim
0: actually I was gonna um, Dennis and I sort of uh, conspired um, beforehand to for him to do the Ross Lerner and and um, Chakravarti articles. I was struck in rereading all of this just how prominently allegory figures in the racialization of um, in the racialization that takes place in *The Fairy Queen*, um, and and that that's every article almost without exception is shot through with that idea. Um, but I'm going to let Dennis explain.
1: <laughs> all right. I yes. Um, yeah, and I think this is a, a you know I, I you know I love all the essays, um, but you know you know. Ross, as well as Benedict Robinson, but Ross really does tackle that sort of central problem of, of allegory, right? Because I think there's in one way, and he doesn't really address it explicitly, but, you know, there is a sort of way in which allegory can be used to erase race, right? Um, because, well, the fact that these characters are Muslim or Irish or whatever they might be, right, that becomes secondary or inconsequential to the higher meaning, right, that transcends, you know, know, that that mundane stuff of race or, you know, whatever, you know, we might say, right? So, um, yeah, so allegory itself can, can or has been used or can be used to um, obscure or to ignore the way in which race functions in, in, the, uh, in the fairy queen. But Ross sort of says, no, that's not the case. Um, really, we need to sort of look at the formal e- equivalency between race racialization and allegorization. Um, and he really draws from the work of Gordon Teske. Um, so, you know, Gordon Teske's, his book, Allegorical Violence, who notes that the allegory is often in tension with the narrative, right? Um, and that if the narrative is sort of going in one direction, the allegory comes in and says, no, you know, it, this is what it means, right? So the allegory sort of forces a, a hierarchy of meaning um, onto the narrative and onto the text, Um and uh, really, you know, the narrative might be much messier, right? The narrative might be much more open-ended than the allegory might want to admit. But of course, you know, you know we all sort of, you know, know as Spencerians that Spencer is al- always very aware of this, right? That Spencer is always playing with the tension between, um, you know, you know, you know, the, the image and the idea um, uh, and between the tension between the allegorical um, the allegorical meaning and the, and the sort of narrative romance epic whatever you want to call it progression of the story um, but I think what what what, um, what learner goes on to really explore and uncover is that we see in the fairy queen, a real anxiety about making racialized bodies mean in the way, just as we, we see in the fairy queen, a sort of anxiety about making bo- anybody mean anything within the allegory. Right. So if racial, if allegorization attempts to say that, you know, I see this character and that character means this, right. Based on what seems right. And of course, Spencer's always problematizing the tension between what seems and what is, um, that 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 very that very movement it also applies to the project of racialization, which also attempts to say um, people who are visible or look look this way or are this way, right? Both individuals and group people, that they mean in this very particular way. Um, so allegory and racialization work sort of hand in hand in the Fairy Queen, and ju- and just as Spencer is always so self conscious about his allegory, um, Lerner argues that. Um, perhaps Spencer is also anxious or not quite certain about his own allegorizing uh, or racializing moves, right. So not that he doesn't racialize and not that he doesn't you know see the, the racialization as you know useful, right because he clearly does in, the, in a view, right. But even as sort of doing that, the poem might betray an uneasiness, right or a sort of realization that that is that is, that is a fiction. Um, And then he goes on to explore this very, very clearly in book five, um, looking at the Muslim characters and as well as, um, uh, you know, the the very explicit story of Irina. Um, But looking at, in particular, the ways in which the poem almost very obviously and very blatantly shows a discrepancy of punishment um based on you know a more very sort of very obvious racialization of characters right so if you're a muslim character you know you you get this very much more extreme punishment than a you know a character a a white christian knight or or a white knight who i guess we are to assume is christian or at least at least it's not muslim um right who commits a a far worse crime like sangulia right um but seems to only get a slap on the hand. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's, in, it's in looking at these sort of mirroring of characters, right? Um, that the poem invites us to really make a really sort of compare and contrast the treatment of the, the you know the more obviously racialized characters, the Muslim characters versus the you know the less racialized. Uh, you can't see me. I'm putting that in quotation marks.
2: Um, the less racialized characters, um, yeah. Excellent. Um, yeah, that's an excellent description, I think, of, of Lerner's article. Um, maybe we can move on to Tess Grogan's article titled, Gather up the relics of thy race, pay them remains in Fairyland," um, which is concerned with burial rights within this racialized landscape of the fairy queen. Race converges with the period's discourses around religion and war, which we've talked a lot about a little bit already. Can you offer a brief summary of Grogan's argument? Um, the article uses a term that's probably unfamiliar to non Spenserians, "pagan." Perhaps you can also talk about the choice to use that term over more familiar terms like Saracen or Pagan or Muslim.
0: Yeah, Shakufa Rajabzadeh has a, a terrific article in Literature Compass um, in 2019 um the depoliticized Saracen and Muslim erasure um and she talks about um how she began the study of um she decided to pursue um <laughs> medieval studies because she wanted to understand um she wanted to understand the violence the contemporary violence visited on muslims and what the heritage of that historical heritage of that was um and so she reads she talks about how as a young scholar sort of reading to understand, reading to understand her current, uh, environment and her present history and, um, and, and how, um, in medieval literature, she notices, um, the, um, delegitimizing of Muslims, the presumption of guilt assigned to them, um, the representation of their faith as idolatrous and therefore valued as inferior, um, the the comparative figure or the foil of white Christianity as it's being produced, um, and embedded in Saracen is this idea of guilt and of deception, where um, Muslims uh, were believed to be descendants of Ishmael. And Hagar, um, and were so as- ashamed of their lineage that they falsely claimed um, the term Saracens to suggest their descent from Sarah, Abraham's wife. Um, and and so buried under the term is the assumption of guilt of dishonesty. Um, the the guilt and dishonesty of Muslims, the deception, um, and so we actually sent that article around to everybody and 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 suggested that that they avoid the term uh, as a racist term. Um, but I think Paynham's also supplies this sense of the unbeliever, generally speaking, and I think that um, as our conversation is really. Exemplified, I, I, the unbeliever extends to Irish Catholics, extends to. In 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 my research, one of the things that I argue is, it, it, what distinguishes early modern colonial ad, endeavor, at least in England, is the fact that most of the um, subjects of English colonial violence are in fact believers themselves, Christians themselves, Irish Catholics, Spanish Catholics, converted Africans. So that what defines early modern English racialization is the refusal of Christians within the communion. And so Paynham kind of nicely supplies that flexibility of the non-believer because the non-believer can be anyone you suggest doesn't believe properly. Um, And what I think Tess Grogan nicely um, works through is the distinction of burial rites in The Fairy Queen between non-believers and believers. But particularly how that breaks so completely with epic tradition that the, the violation of the body in epic tradition is, is the great sin. I mean, that, that, that signals the anti-hero um, and the violation of the body in Spencer's Fairyland signals the unbeliever. And, um, and, you know, you have the, the um, traditions in Spencer of the unbeliever marked by excessive mourning, um, the unbeliever marked by excessive violence in the case of Palente. Um, but you, you know, this sort of, this goes hand in hand with Spencer's description of the Irish foster mother in the view, who picks up her foster son's head and drinks his blood, saying that the earth isn't fit to absorb it, and that you know just uh, imbuing her face with blood is not only proof, again in scare quotes, of her her. Um, her Scythian descent or or Irish Scythian descent but also proof of her non-belief she would have comfort in Christianity were she a believer and and so it stands as proof right um, but what what I think Grogan sort of nicely um, shows and it 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 also pursues learners um Article really well, in terms of how allegory is working, and what the allegorical figures in the spare in the Fairy Queen represent. But also, if you have uh, Odysseus, for example, mourning um, Palante, then okay, she is uh, she is characterized as unChristian, but the man she mourns is one that um, that himself um, sort of uh, um, desecrated bodies, right? And so the punishment visited upon these characters is justified by their own violence. Um, and the lack of belief <laughs> in these characters um, is is underscored by their excessive mourning. Now, of course, any desecration of bodies done by um, fairy knights or any desecration of bodies done by Christian characters is somehow uh, forgiven because it's enacted against those who, again, we, we, we can't have this discussion without scare quotes, um, but those who deserve it, right?
2: We've only talked about a, a few of the wonderful um, articles in this collection, um, but uh, I encourage um, anyone interested to go read the issue itself.
0: There's so much wonderful work in it, as Dennis said. It really... Um, you know, we were talking about just how hard pressed we are to not describe every single article in in the collection. Um, Melissa Sanchez's, uh, Benedict Robinson's, um, Eric Songs. I mean, it, I I I wouldn't say there's a bad chapter in it, but that might be just me padding. <laughs> Patting us on the back. I'm not sure. No, I think we're patting our, our, our authors just did tremendous work. Tremendous.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing I think that the issue really does is really showcase a, a, the different ways in which you can engage Spencer and race. Right. So, you know, we have, right. So we have people, you know, you know, Melissa again, you know, that's a, you know, really asking to think about issues of, of whiteness and sexuality. Right. And, um, you know, Anna Wainwright thinking from a comparative point of view, comparing the fairy queen to uh, to Tasso or comparing Spencer and Tasso, right? And again, you know, there's, you know, bl- we have blood, we have uh, um, uh, we have the Irish, of course, right? So I think, you know, one of the things that I think the volume really wanted to do, and again, not to pat ourselves on the back, but really to pat the authors on the back um, for their really engaging work is to show how rich the study of, Race and Spencer can be, and then to just here, here are just some of the ways. Here are just some avenues to pursue, and and now I think the hope is that um, people will just
2: keep keep going. Yeah, in the spirit of continuing this conversation, maybe we can conclude by turning to Iana Thompson's afterward, which offers three suggestions for the further revitalization of Spencer studies. Uh, Dennis, can you walk us through Thompson's uh, propositions?
1: I'd be happy to. Though Kim might have to help me on the third, because I think I only have two in mind right now. Maybe the other one will come up, but <laughs> but I think one of the things that I that I really took from her brilliant piece is a need to really think rethink where we encounter Spencer and who we put in Spencer in conversation with, right? I think this gets, gets right back to where, um, where the first question you asked me is, or you asked us is where do we encounter Spencer, um, right? You know, so if, if a student encounters Spencer at the undergraduate level, uh, which might be even less and less frequent than it used to be, but if a student encounters Spencer at the undergraduate level, they're likely to encounter a portion of Spencer in the survey class. Right, and then if they encounter him again, you know he is likely to be encountered in, um, well, in a Renaissance class. So you know a historical, a, a period-specific class, right? Um, you know whether that's a general 16th century class or it's a class on Renaissance epic. So Spencer is always very is contextualized in this very specific way that. Thompson is arguing actually doesn't do Spencer much service, right? Um, it sort of limits it, it limits what can be done with him in the ways in which we can use Spencer to sort of think through things, right? Um, so she really says, well, what would happen if we if we put Spencer not in the Renaissance epic class or the Renaissance poetry class, um, but she uses the example, you know of what would happen if we put Spencer in a class on migration or immigration or migration and movement. I think that's the class she suggests, right? Um, And then we sort of put Spencer along authors from different periods in thinking about and looking at how they differently represent movement and migration from one place to another. And what are the sort of um, poetic and strategies, the reasons for doing so and how that, recontextualizing of Spencer not only allows Spencer, right, to shed some light or help us think differently about other texts, but of course it's going to allow students, right, and all of us to think differently about Spencer. Um, so that's one That's one of the things I really take away. Um, the other thing I take away from Spence, from Ayana Thompson, is again about is who, who, where we place Spencer, who gets to talk about Spencer, is what would happen if we let non-Spencerians well, what would happen if we let non-Spencerians talk about Spencer? God forbid, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think in particular, right, Spencer is you know, we have this sense, right, that anybody can talk about Shakespeare, right? And anybody has, right? And I think wonderfully so, right? You know, popular... People talk about Spencer, right? I am sorry about Shakespeare, right? And of course, there's a long tradition of adaptation of Shakespeare. Um, you know, there's a long tradition, just for example, of Black writers like Baldwin and Morrison and Gio- Nicky Giovanni writing about Shakespeare and having comments about Shakespeare, right? So there's a way in which you know, you know, um, different voices, whether or not they've always been just, um, acknowledge, but different voices have always seemingly had something to say about Shakespeare, right? And that has done Shakespeare good, right? Um, uh, our understanding and our sort of engagement of Shakespeare has been enlivened because of that, but we don't really have that for Spencer, right? You know, um, or at least not to the same extent. Um, like, you know, I'm sure, you know, I, you know, I'm sure. Sh- sure, you know, plenty of black folks have read Spencer along the years, through the years, you know, and maybe this is a project for me to think about and, you know, now i recovery projects, but, but we don't have that sort of long tradition of, of having non-Spencerians talk about Spencer. So she says, well, what would happen, for example, if we, if Spencer studies, the journals invited, um, scholars outside of Spencer studies to comment on the fairy queen or to, or to sort of offer a reading of the fairy queen, for example. Um, so what would it look like to have, you know, she names Fred Moten, for example, the the African-American critic and poet. Um, I'm sure Fred Moten would see some things in the fairy queen <laughs> and and raise some issues in the fairy queen that Spencerians have not yet been able to see. Um, and partially because, and this is, Maybe this is the third one, I'm not sure. But part of it is that Spencer Studies has been um, hindered by its own racecraft, right? The way in which racecraft, and she's drawing from the work of Karen and Barbara Fields, um, but um, that's. That Spencer studies has been so isolated, right? And there's been this, you know, and sort of ma- imagination of who Spencer is and what he does, right? That is that is so deeply entrenched in Spencer studies that it's been very hard to sort of think outside of it. Um, and what Spencer studies could really benefit from. Uh, is from having some scholars who are very, 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 very outside of it, right? Because uh, you know, because even Kim and I know something about that, right? We were we were raised in it, we were educated in it, right? And I think you know, hopefully, we're not so entrenched, right, in Spencer studies that we can't you know think differently or think outside of its confines. But um, but likely the insights of scholars working in you know African American studies or Islamic studies, you know, they're only going to be able to enliven. Um, uh, enliven Spencer and give him uh, s- s- give him some new relevance and give him some new, something new to say. Um.
0: Yeah, speaking of new relevance and 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 something new to say, one of the things she does suggest, um, the third bullet point, if you will, is a, a new edition, a new penguin classics edition that's just more honest in its gloss of terms. Um, that that is cheap, accessible. We need these things in a text for students, but we 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 don't have one that's honest about what it's doing, um, in in really confrontational ways, um, and we need that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think of about uh, Kim Hall's edition of Othello, you know, and how that changed uh, the conversation in classrooms around that play. Um, finally, I want to turn to, um, your, your future plans. I know this issue is relatively fresh off the press and Kim, you have an exciting new monograph, uh, titled Bad Humor out. Um, but have you given a thought to what your next projects might be?
0: No, um, no, (laughs) um, I, I lie, but, but only a little tiny bit. Um, uh, in the fall, um, Bloomsbury brought out its cultural history of race. And Dorothy Kim and I edited a volume um, in that collection, volume three, that looks at late medieval up through the early modern with fantastic work by Matthew Vernon, um, Geraldine Hang, Asa Mittman, Gabby Pichowski. Um, and and Dorothy, who's who's brilliant, um, but that came out in the fall, and then the monograph came out in the spring. And I'm tired. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, but I am. I think it's good actually to have fallow periods. I think you do um, take everything out of your reserves. You know, you write, you think, you think with people, you're working, and I. I, I do think you get to a, a point where you've got to just stop, rest, think, read. Um, and that's where I am right now. Dennis, on the other hand, is working so hard. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh,
1: thank you. Uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I It escaped me that I was supposed to answer the question, too. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm currently, I mean, it. I'm talking about this and every, and even as we were working on the volume, you know, I remembered what first actually attracted me to the early modern period was actually Spencer, not Shakespeare, right? You know, Spencer was the thing that I really said, huh, there's something very interesting and weird about the Renaissance that I think I want to know more about. And yet I'm working, and yet I'm writing a book on Shakespeare right now. (laughs) So uh, eventually I do hope to get back to Spencer. Um, But I'm, I'm working on a book on Shakespeare and pity, um, and really part of it just really emerged from teaching, right? Um, when you teach Shakespeare all the time, you just start to, you know, become annoyed by certain things. Um, and then one for me that began to interest me slash annoy me was just what seemed to be a casual, but also not so casual use of the word pity in his plays. And me, then me trying to figure out what exactly is that emotion or that feeling doing, um, and really it began with a, that, that, that 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 moment in Othello where um she, Othello says he loved Desmona because she did pity him right for the dangers he had passed right and you know that that, that line has always irked me I'm like why does he love her that she pitied him right so that's that whole me, me being really bothered by that line has led to this This project of really trying to understand the various early modern discourses, you know, um, classical rhetoric, Petrarchan love poetry, um, Christian theology and effective piety, trying to sort of understand the various ways in which early moderns understood what this emotion was. And then also trying to think about, well, how does this emotion then begin to govern um, interactions between different type of people, right? Um, people of different races and different
2: religions, primarily. Excellent. We'll we'll keep our eyes out for for all of that work. Uh, thank you both for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having thank us. You
2: so, thank you, John. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you.